If you turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 3. Last week, we looked at verse 16, for God so loved the world. The argument here that Jesus is making, and you have to remember, too, that in John 3, Jesus is speaking, Nicodemus is speaking, and John, the apostle who's writing this book, is giving commentary on all of it. And sometimes it's not exactly sure who said what. I don't know that Jesus would have actually said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I don't know if that would have made sense exactly to Nicodemus, because Jesus was speaking to him. But in either case, this is God's message in chapter 3, and it's one of the most dear uh, passages in the entire Bible, probably the most memorized verse in the Bible that people would, would know. But immediately he goes on. He doesn't just stop at that verse. He goes on because there is movement in this. So we're going to read from verses 16 through 21, and we're going to look at the whole gist of his argument. We have already seen that as Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the most powerful men in the country and most religious men in the country, Jesus says, you must be born again. If you are going to enter the kingdom of heaven, if you're going to know what it's like to be where God is forever, then you must be born again. It's something as essential as being alive or being not alive. It's that crucial to you. And as as Nicodemus was puzzling it over, Jesus gave an Old Testament passage, and we've looked at this already. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... On the pole, all the people that were snake-bitten would look upon that snake. And as they looked upon that that brass snake that represented their, their suffering, represented their death, then they realized that at that moment they were rescued. That moment they lived instead of died. And Jesus said, just like Moses lifted up the snake, the Son of Man, referring to himself, must be lifted up as well. And then... This is the passage, for God so loved the world that he, begave, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's continue, verse 17. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world and that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hates the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, and that they are wrought of God. So there is a lot to be said here. It's such a huge sun of brightness, verse 16, that sometimes it obscures the verses around it that are equally powerful and that say so much to us about the gospel. Uh, One of my heroes, James Boyce, said once, I quoted him, said that in one sense the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ is as wide as humanity. Whosoever believes in him should be saved and not perish. But 
It is also as narrow as the company of those who have faith in him. So John 3.16 is not saying that all men will be saved. It is not. That whosoever believeth in him is wide as anybody in the world. But only those who believeth in him shall not perish. That was the purpose of God sending his son. That it took the death of Christ to do something so monumental as to rescue us from perishing. Because we were perishing. So, so as we looked last week at John 3.16... We look at the fact that it took the death of Christ to do what we could do, what we had to do. It must. He, he must be lifted up, Jesus said. It was essential that Christ be lifted up between heaven and earth and take the sins of humanity upon him, that God would then be free in his love to express his love for us and still be completely righteous in, in the judgment of sin. His hatred of sin does not stop because he loves us. He can't overlook one thing in order to do another. God does not like us. We can, we can be one thing and, and basically ignore something and, and concentrate on something else. God is consistent in himself, and his hatred of sin is complete, and his righteousness is complete, and by the death of Christ, God was righteous and fair and loving to us that we should not perish. This is from Romans chapter 3. Paul is basically talking about the entire gospel. And he was at, at the end, in his, end of his argument, he was talking about what happened because G Jesus died for us. And this is verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. So let's pause there just a minute. The law, which is just as, as perfect as God... It shows you what God would do in any situation. When God gave his law, he essentially told us exactly who he is. What would God do? What would God not do? What would God love? What would God hate? His law reveals him. And his law was commanded to all of his creatures. Everyone that is breathing air was commanded to live like God has commanded them to live, to live like God lives. But the problem is just commanding me to do something doesn't give me the want to or the ability to. I can't fly. You could command me to fly to the moon and I would just laugh at you because I don't even know what that means. What do I do? Do I jump? Because my, my inability is so extreme. For, for you to live like God, the problem of living like God is not just that we're made out of dirt. That's a big problem. That we are not free like God is free. We don't do as we please. Even the things we want to do, we can only do if we have the resources to do. You know, I can't buy a Ferrari. I don't care what you say. I can't do it. There's no, I do not have the resources to do it. I don't have that decision to make. God has all decisions to make. He can be as he pleases. He can do as he wants because he's totally free. We're not like that. If you command me to be like God, I can't be like God. I don't have that capacity. So the law was weak. That's what it says. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, because I'm a man, commanding me to be like God does not make me be like God. It, in fact, what it does is shows me <clears throat> that I'm not like God. It very pointedly tells me, here's the standard and here's you. It's the thermometer that tells you that this is healthy and you're different from healthy. Your temperature is too high, your temperature is too low. Here's the standard, you don't meet the standard. 
When I say 10 out of 10 is the standard and you made a four, all that, all that standard did was prove that you were not meeting the standard. That's all it does. And the law doesn't help us. The law doesn't help me be godly. The law only condemns me for not being godly. And Paul said, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That what happened was when Jesus lived perfectly, completely accepted in our place, the ones whosoever believeth in him, Jesus' life is yours. Jesus' righteousness is yours. His obedience is yours. His, his ability to do what God commanded men to do because Jesus was a man. You have to realize the God of all eternity is a man who lived as a man and pleased God as a man, and that man's uh, acceptance is converted to whosoever believeth in him. That is the beautiful gospel. It, it hasn't sunk into me. It has the, the, the little bit that it's sunk in, that Jesus is for me, not just his death, but his life was for me, and his death was for my, for my crimes. And now I'm free. I'm totally free. I have nothing. Nothing is tying me down. I can, I can please God, holy, holy, holy God. But the law couldn't do it. But sending his son did. The likeness of sinful flesh. He was a man. He looked like us. And for sin, he, he sent him for sin. And by sending him for sin, he became sin. And God destroyed him. He went through the, the horrors of, our, of God's wrath, whatever that means. I don't know what that means, and hallelujah, I'll never know what that means. Because you would never end, you could never pay that. You could never go to the depths of God's wrath against our sin. But Jesus did. And he condemned sin in the flesh. What that means is now it's not held to our account. For God so loved the world is deeper than a hundred sermons. You couldn't, you couldn't get to the bottom of it. It's, it, it. You couldn't sound it to the bottom with a weight on a string. Now let's go to 17. I think just as beautiful as 16. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So when Miss Libby read in the book of Amos, she was reading about the day of the Lord. And the Jews were very cocky, and they, they were wicked people. They lived wicked. They did not live according to God's will at all, but they, they thought that on the day of the Lord, the Jews would all be saved, and all of the other nations would be condemned. That was their thought. And Amos was like scratching his head, Do you, are you looking forward to the day of the Lord? As a wicked person who's living outside of God's will, completely like thumbing your nose at God and his righteousness, you think the day of the Lord is going to be your rejoicing? It'll be a dark and gloomy day, a day, day of terror that you couldn't express because how, who could endure a holy God coming to judge? That's terrifying. But what the law couldn't do in that it was weak through the flesh by God sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. God did not send his son to condemn the world. God sent his son not as a condemner, but as a savior. 
that the world might be saved through him. So the point of Jesus' coming was, was not to redeem Israel. It wasn't to, to lambast the Romans. It was not to, to, to basically come in and, and, and win the day. It was that the world might be saved through them. If you realize what Jesus gave you when he saved your soul, he gave you eternal life that you would not perish. If I would ever apprehend what that means, the rest you can keep. You can keep everything else. God, it does not matter what you give me. Whatever amount of finances, that's fine. Whatever amount of health, that's fine. I'm, whatever longevity of life, that's fine. There's not, you're not mean to me. To give me eternal life, which means it's not just later, it's now. The life that God is living in glory, I'm living now. If I were to only understand that, and I would have victory in it, and see that I'm in this land like a soldier in a tent in a foreign land, if I could understand that, instead of simply wanting stuff all the time, and that God is somehow my fairy godmother to, to grant me whatever I wish, then I would understand that all I have, I need. Everything I need, God has given me. And everything in my day is simply an opportunity to give him glory and to show him thanks for the, well, Paul called it the incomparable gift. You couldn't, you, the unspeakable gift, I think he said in the Corinthians. You couldn't even speak about it. It's too big to express in words what Jesus did for us when God sent his son to, to deal. He came to save the world not to condemn the world. This is John 12, verse 47. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, now in some ways, that's like you. I could give you other passages just the same, that Jesus came to save the world, not to condemn the world, but you know that Jesus Christ will be our judge. That is as clear as a bell. It's in a hundred places in Scripture that Jesus himself will judge us. But as when he came, his first coming was not as judge, it was a savior. It was to live in this world, to, be, to, to, to experience all that we experience. And Jesus experienced things that I never experienced, but there are people that have endured what, what certain things that Jesus did. He, he lived for us in this fallen world and, and suffered in in deprivation the way people suffer in this world abuse like people suffer in this world and he is representing man he is now the man that's pleasing god and he's not the judge but he will be the judge when he comes he will judge in righteousness now this is the verse i'm going to kind of spend most of my time on this is 18 he that believeth on him is not condemned now, that's beautiful how it says it. it's going to say it positively and then it's going to reverse and say it negatively because he's beating this point home. This is as important as it can be. He that believeth on him is not condemned. I need you to say that this expression, he that believeth on him, is, is word for word the same as whosoever believeth in him. The person who is trusting him, that's the, the person we're talking about. The person who is putting everything upon Jesus that Jesus will represent me before God because he invited me to accept him. That person is not condemned. There is no condemnation. And it's over for that person. It's not in their present. It's not in their future. It is over. God will not judge them. This says, he that believes on him is not condemned, but 
he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. To be condemned already, I must know that. I believe in order to be saved. That has to be gotten through in my brain. <clears throat> I wasn't saved until I knew I was damned. I was not saved. You can have an attraction to, to church and to people. Christian people are the loveliest people in the world. They're the friendliest people, the most, in, the most in, uh, hugging people that I've ever known. It's not a problem to, be, to want to be together with people who are nice to you and love you and, tr and act the way they should act towards you. But you will not be saved until you realize that you have offended God yourself. You have offended him, and your sins are not overlookable. They're not. They will be judged with the only judgment possible, and that is perishing. And that Jesus came that you should not perish. When you recognize that you were perishing and that Jesus came that you should not perish, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, then everlasting life is instantly yours because you are not condemned. That person has not condemned, but... A person who believeth not is condemned already. It's already done. I need you to know that we're like people who are in the desert and the snakes have already bitten you. When you preach the gospel to someone, do not think that person is neutral. Do not offer them a better life. You know, that this is preferable to this. That's not the thing. You do not say following Jesus is one of your options, and following Jesus will give you all of these good things. Following Satan, which you don't know that that's what you're doing, but that's what you're doing, will only lead to misery and suffering. Well, you didn't say anything wrong, except that that person is seeing themselves as being able to decide this or this. I want this, or do I want this? And if they're actually honest person, they could say, okay, do I want life or do I want, want death? Do I want, do I want to go through a hard road leading to life or do I want to go through an easy road or a fun road or my choice of roads that will eventually lead in death? Well, you think that that's what you're saying, but that person is not too neutral. This person is already condemned. The person that you're pre preaching the gospel to, the person that you are if you're sitting here unsaved is the is that you're already condemned. It's not one day you will be condemned. One day we will, the sentence will be passed on you and then executed. No, the sentence has already been passed. You have, you have sinned against the holy God, and that's it. You are condemned. Now when you realize that I'm condemned, and now you see a rescue, suddenly a savior makes sense. The word savior is someone who took you from peril and removed, that, removed you from that peril, gave you the ability to live when you were in crisis going to die, that person is then on that. Jesus said it, you're this close. You are not very far from the kingdom of God, Jesus told one of the Pharisees. Because if you could understand the fact that you're already condemned, now you look for a rescue. If you truly believe that you have the disease and that it's yours and that it's deadly and it's going to kill you, now you start investigating the cure. Now you say, okay, is there a cure for me? What's the cost of this cure? Now you start weighing the cost, right? When I realize that Jesus is the only savior and that there is no other savior, then I start saying, okay, am I willing to follow him? Because it's expensive. 
It's a free gift given by God, but it'll cost you everything that you have. It's a free gift. Your salvation is not viable by your abilities in any way, but it will cost you everything because you must take up your cross daily and follow him. And that is a, that is a life that God is saying, now that you are free, follow me. He does not tell the world to follow him. He tells, now that you are free, now that you are rescued, now that I've saved your soul, as you put your trust in Jesus, now, now you have a discipleship. Now you're following him. And that is when you will fail and fall. But your sins are gone. Your sins are not being recorded as somehow that God is, you're better or someone else is worse. Not one of us are better or worse than any of the others. We're saved men, saved women, or we're not. You're condemned already. And I think those are sweet words. They're scary words, but they're words I need to hear. Because if I'm condemned already, then I can look for the Savior who was given to me, and I will take him with delight. If otherwise, if you, if you give Jesus as some kind of a therapy, um, first of all, Jesus will not be a therapy for someone. He'll either be their Savior or he won't. It's, but anyone who comes to him will accept but you come to him in faith and repentance, and that's what it is. All of us have gone like sheep. We're all, we're all like sheep that have gone astray. We are not neutral. But anyone who believes in Christ is not judged. That, that is so beautiful. There's so, there's so many places I could take you. Let me just take you to one. I have six written down here. I'll, I'll take you to one. This is Psalm 32. This is David. He's musing on what is, a, what is a person like who God has completely forgiven all of his sins. This is said, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. If your sins are not counted against you, what kind of a person are you if you know that? And why do you meet together, if not to remind each other, that your sins are gone? That's, why, that's what you're to meet together for. Your sins are gone. Because I promise I will remember my sins over and over and over and over. And when we meet together and we exalt our Savior and we call him Savior, and it dawns on us that he saved us from our sins and that we should not perish, we're free. And that freedom allows us to live in grace. We, we live in grace. We, do not, we are not working for anything. God gives us grace. So I wrote down a couple things. He that believeth not is condemned already. The first thing I wrote down that I see here is that he didn't believe in the name of the Son of God. And I see that that is strong, but I can imagine that you could be ignorant and not know the name of, the, of Jesus Christ. There could be an ignorance. And that God would say, you have not believed in the name of the Son of God, therefore you're condemned. You're condemned because of your sins against God. But you're not, you're not not condemned because you did not believe in the name of the Son of God. He is your rescue. And people will forever despise Christianity because it's exclusive. And it always has to be. And whenever you see a congregation that has completely compromised and allowing anything and anything and anything so that people will come to church, well, I don't even know what you're there for because a church is a church of Christians who are living according to God's will 
in gratitude for what God has done when he saved you from your sins. And it's not simply a meeting. I don't care that there's 10,000 jumping people. I, I'm sorry, I don't care. I, I don't, that wouldn't be where I would want to be just because we have a lot, because it's not, people would love to have more and more people involved, but I would want people to hear the gospel. I would want people to truly know that they're condemned and God is giving them a rescue. That is what I would want. And there are few that find that road. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many find it. But few is the road, the, the narrow is the road, and straight is the way that leads to, to life, and few find it. But I tell you, you reach out. You reach out whosoever believeth in him. So he did not believe. This is, uh, this is from John chapter 5. There is so much that when I, when I preach you John, I almost, almost have to exclusively give quotes from John because John's message is so complete as it goes through. Every single subject that I can point to is, is pointed in John. That's why you point new Christians to the book of John. Not that it's the easiest book to read. It's very easy to read, but it's not because it's easy, but because it's so comprehensive in terms of what the gospel is. This is, this is Jesus speaking in verse 28, chapter 5. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear my voice and shall come forth they that have done good unto resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto resurrection of damnation. To do good or to do evil is believing in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's what Jesus says later to the Pharisees. The work of God is this, that you believe upon the name of the Son of God. That's the work. That's what God expects people to do, to trust Jesus. And you think, what? That's nothing. That's easy. Well, it's hard for me. It's hard for me, I don't know if it's hard for you, to live, to live by putting all of my trust into Jesus and not trusting myself. That's a very hard thing to do. And that's the work of a Christian. The work of a Christian is not to do X, Y, Z, P, D, Q. It's to trust Christ as your Savior. That is what a Christian is. All the rest comes as a result of being saved, not because you're trying to get something from God. God doesn't sell salvation at any price. You trust Christ, and the work that God has for us is to put their trust in Christ. Only new birth can do this, and this is the context of this passage. You must be born again. You must be new, the same as a person who's not alive is different from a person who is alive, or a person who doesn't even exist is different from a person who's obviously a person. This person is breathing, this person's heart is beating, this person is thinking, this person's moving. Everything that tells you it's alive is alive. You're not even, a, you're a twinkle in your father's eye and you're a baby, that's different. You must be born again. If you are going to live, what happens is if you have a new birth, it results in a transformed life. That's what happens. You don't transform your life in order to get a new birth. You're born, then you cry. You're born, and then you say, oh, God, I've offended you. You don't say, I've offended you, God. Please forgive me, and then God gives you new birth. You believe, and by believing, you don't even know what you're doing. You simply believe that what God said was true and that you put your trust in him, and as you put your trust in him, then little by little by little by little. It's not, it's not so dramatic. It's not, it's not flashy. You live your life, and suddenly you're, you're godlier, each step as you fall and fail and 
disaster after disaster, you eventually are living your life more like God would have you to do because your trust is not in yourself. Your trust is in Christ. That's, it's, it's, your obedience is because of your new life. Your transformed life is because of your new life, not for any other reason. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. That's hard. And I believe that, that I believe more now than I ever did because I've sat under the gospel longer. I really think that's what you must sit under the gospel, and it must be the gospel. You cannot have, a, you cannot have someone giving you a discourse on anything else. It's the gospel that will bring new life. It's the gospel that will convince you of your sin. It's the gospel that shows you where to trust. It's the gospel that tells you why you should trust Jesus Christ, that he is God. It's the gospel that's the gospel, it's the gospel, it's the gospel. It's the gospel that nourishes Christians, and it's the gospel that makes Christians, and nothing else. To the extent that, this is, that, that churches are simply talking about, I don't know what they talk about, but giving some kind of a speech that doesn't change people's lives. Speeches don't change people's lives. It's the foolishness of preaching, believe it or not, as long as what you're preaching is the, is the gospel of Jesus Christ as found in the scriptures. That's what it is. So, so there is only one mediator between God and men, and that's Jesus Christ. The, the, the name of Jesus Christ is, is what you do. This is verse 19. This is the condemnation. So why are they condemned already? This is what they're condemned of. This is 19. That light was come into the world and that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now, my father-in-law was staring at the ceiling this morning and there was a big wolf spider right above his head. And he was thinking, okay, could I get up and squish that spider? But as soon as he got up, and turned on the light, the spider scurried away and hid back in the hole where he came from. And that's the way it works. As long as the spider was out in the dark, trying to, I guess he was crawling around on his forehead, I don't know. But while he was in the dark, he was out. He was free. And men do the same thing. Men love the dark. The dark hides them. And they can find each other in the dark. They can, they can do what they want in the dark. You get drunk in the dark, it says later in, in, in the New Testament. Why? Because I'm, a, I'm ashamed. I like what I'm doing, but I don't want people to know. So I hide. I keep in the dark. I want to stay in the dark. But that's the problem. This says that's a condemnation. Lights come into the world, and men hate the light. They would rather have the darkness. See, I think that is a far more condemning statement then they did not believe in the name of the Son of God. Men prefer their sin, and they hate the light. They don't want to come to the light. And when Jesus Christ came, Jesus is just, he's a beacon. He's a screaming light. If you remember, this was the whole middle of chapter 1, was it was the, the light came. In him was light, uh, and, and no, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Remember that? He shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend him. Okay. This is from John chapter 11 again, more from John. Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in a day? If any man walks in the day, he stumbles not because he sees the light of this world. But if a man walk at night, he stumbleth because there is no light in him. And he's referring to himself in that passage as the light of the world. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. 
I'm the one who illuminates. I'm the one who allows you to see. And I think the, the, the biggest thing that Jesus said was the world doesn't hate you. The world doesn't hate you. The world hates me because I testify against it. I testify that their works are evil, and that's why they hate me. It's not because I'm a leader or it's not because I'm anything. I simply say what you're doing is wrong, and that angers them to the point that they want to kill me. And that, that is exactly the thing. If you, do not, if you have Christ's life in you and you start living like, like Christ lived, men will hate you the same. To the, to the degree that you're living out the gospel in your life, you're despised because you can't be with someone who's doing wicked and not be an irritant to them. Now, if you're a compromiser and you can sit with any company and make everybody feel fine because you'd rather you care more about a wicked man's, I don't know, social feelings than their soul, then you're not a, you, the, men, the world doesn't hate you. But to the degree that you say, I'm sorry, what you're doing is wicked, and you will be judged at the end of time, first, you're mocked, you're despised, that you will be. You will be mocked, and Jesus said, because I was mocked first. You are hated, Jesus, I was hated first. But don't worry, Jesus said, I've overcome the world. So men hate the light. I wrote down Proverbs 1. We read, we read through Proverbs in our Bible study on Wednesdays. And this was a scary passage in, verse, in chapter 1. of this, this was, I don't know, months ago when we, when we studied this. But this is from verse 25. You have all said it not my counsel. This is wisdom, by the way, calling out in chapter 1 of Proverbs. Wisdom is calling out. And wisdom is capitalized in the Bible. This is Jesus. All, I would, you would have none of my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when your fear comes, when your fear comes as desolation and your destruction comes as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they shall call upon me and I will not answer. We saw that in Bible in, in Sunday school today, that, that men will call out upon Jehovah's name, but, at the, but, but Jehovah will not answer because there will be a time when there's no mercy left. When Jesus comes, there is no mercy. That's the, the ark's door is shut. I will laugh at you, and I will not answer. You will seek me early, they'll not find me, for they that hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. When Jesus came, they hated him. These are the people who should have been ready for him. These are the people that would have known that he was coming and that would have known what he looked like when he got here, and it would, but hated it because it made them feel uncomfortable about living the way they chose to live. So I think that's much more condemning. They prefer their sin, and they hate the light. So we've seen in this one verse, they did not believe upon the name of the, of the Lord, the, Jesus, the, the Son of God. They, they prefer their sin. They would rather do it because I don't like the light because it shows me what I look like, right? Have you ever looked at your face in a mirror in the pitch black dark? You can't see a thing. You're okay. Feels great to you. The brighter the light, the scarier you look. That's the problem. That's the problem with me. So, I don't know. The mirrors that have the lights right in them, I'm like, no, thank you. I'd rather have it the other way. It's, and it's the same. It's the same morally in people. They, they hate the light because it reproves them. It reproves them. Here's 21. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. Now, no bragging, 
Have you ever lived in the truth? If you live in the truth, what you're proving is that God is actually doing it, that God is working in you. If you've ever lived in the truth and you're, you're willing to say, no, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I'm a sinner that if I've done anything good in my life, Jesus did it. If I've done anything bad in my life, I'm responsible. Now, men, that's so backwards. Nobody wants that. That sounds silly. That sounds like a cult. Why, what on earth would I say that if I've done anything right, God did it in me. But if I did anything wrong, it's my responsibility. Because that's what the Bible says. That's how the Bible says we are. We, are, we, will, always, we will always go one way unless we're, unless we're changed. The Holy Spirit actually has to be working in us that I would please God. And that's how we pray. We pray, Holy Spirit, please let us please God today. Let me live in such a way that would bring honor to you. I have to pray that because on my own, I will always go into the ditch. But God is willing to work in us. He has determined for his truth to triumph through us. This is 1 John 1. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleans us from all sin. Do you see the two things that result? If I live in God's truth, saying that what God said is true about me and I'm not trying to hide anymore, then, what, then, then two things happen. We have fellowship with each other. And we have fellowship with, with Jesus Christ. How that's possible? I don't know. How is it possible that we would have something common with Jesus Christ? And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. As we simply walk in what God says and we stop trying to hide. We can't hide behind a fig leaf. God must clothe us. If we're going to be clothed, we must be clothed by God. It's a, otherwise, it's a fool's errand. This is chapter 5 in Ephesians. This is Paul speaking. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of this, these things cometh the wrath of God on the children of disobedience. Be you not therefore partakers with them. For you were sometimes darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness and righteousness and truth proving what is acceptable unto the Lord and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is shame to even speak of those things which are done to, by, of them in the secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatever doth make manifest is light. So if you let the light of Jesus Christ shine on you and you say, in what way have I offended you? Present yourself to the Lord in your morning prayers. Present yourself exactly the way you are, not trying, to, not trying to spin it at all. God, this is me. I understand by faith that you accept me in Jesus. Tell me what is lacking that I might be like Jesus. In what way am I still holding on to my old uh, dead life? In what way is my grave clothes still strangling me that I might not walk? Show me that I might repent of it. Not repent so that you get salvation. Repent because you have salvation. That is what it is. You are free. Now live as children of the light. Don't lurk anymore. Don't lurk. Even in one small part of your life, don't lurk. That's what a Christian is to do. You're to live 
freely, admitting who you are, admitting what you've done, admitting it, and then turning your back on it, moving towards God in faith. That gives God glory. This is 1 John 2. Hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. We know God if we keep his commandments, because otherwise you would never keep his commandments. You know that you're born of God if you keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keeps not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whosoever keeps his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know that we are in him. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought to walk even as he, uh, also to walk even as he walked. So the same, the same the same way that the, the light of God is in Jesus' life. It's the same in mine. I admit who I am. I admit what I want and how my heart works and how, how my mind works and that I all of that's overridden as I turn towards, towards uh, God in Christ. That's what happens. I'm walking in the light and that light shows me for who I am. Then I repent of those things. I don't know. Have you ever thrown a rock away when you're plowing the garden? And you're like, I've plowed this same land 40 years in a row, and I found a rock. What do you do with the rock? You don't put it back in your garden. You throw it in your neighbor's garden. That's what you do. It's exactly what you do. You will, you will for the rest of your life, find sin in your life. You find sin in your life because God's light is shining on you and you can see where you're not like him. And when you find a rock, you get rid of the rock. That's what it is. That's repentance. And it's repentance, perpetual repentance until we meet him. When we meet him, we will be like him. When we meet him, there will be no more repentance because your heart will be like his. You will be removed from sin. You'll be removed from the possibility of sin. There will be no way that you have a sin nature that you're always fighting. There's no devil to trick you. There's no world to entice you. There is nothing. But in the meantime, repentance is walking in the light. And as Jesus shines what true is, you know what true is. And to whatever degree you're different, you repent. That's what it is. That's what it says at the end. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be manifested. And at the end says that they are wrought of God. A person who's walking in the light is showing to the world that what they're actually doing in their life, God did. It's a proof that God is working in the world because he, he works in you. I just hope that's an encouragement to you. It's a, it certainly is a challenge to me.